Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. This is amazing. Yay! Thank you for inviting me. This is very cool. So I'm going to introduce you for all our listeners out there. This is Ruby Warrington, a British girl boss and author of upcoming book, Material Girl, Mystical World, and she's creating a space for the spiritual and the sex in the city-minded girl. She has also been an editor at UK Sunday Times Style Magazine and is the creator of the online magazine called Numinous. So, most important question first, what's your sign, Ruby? <laughs> Um, well, it's always a three-part answer, right, when you're into astrology. So I'm Aries, Sun sign, which is my kind of entrepreneurial side, I guess. Um, I have Sagittarius rising, which makes me quite kind of like friendly and outgoing and sort of like I'm really interested in new ideas and sort of different people from different cultures and things like that. And then I also have a Cancer moon, which is like super sensitive and emo, which means my preferred state is basically not leaving my apartment all week and living in my, my PJs. Okay, so lots of fire, but then some chill. (laughs) Sorry? I said lots of fire, but then some chill in there. Yes, exactly. It's My my chart is all fire and water, um, which can be kind of conflicting sometimes. I'm definitely what you might call an introverted extrovert. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of people (laughs) can identify with that, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so. Oh, pardon? How about you? Oh, I'm a Taurus sun, I'm a Gemini rising, and I'm a Cancer moon. Oh, I'm a Cancer moon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, you know, that earthy kind of vibe, and then I do have a lot of feels. But I like that my Gemini keeps me more mm-hmm. aloof and fun-loving and kind of free. I like I like that feeling more than the moody yeah. Cancer side of myself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, jumping right in... Since I know mm-hmm. that you're busy, like you just came out with your book, well, soon. Um, yeah. I kind of wanted to ch- touch on this topic about sober socializing. So mm. I'm recently out of college. I'm still in my mid 20s. I'm very much in the drinking culture. And I come across this a lot where people want to drink less or they want to stop totally, but it just seems weird. And they seem like, oh, if I do that, I won't have any social life or friends. So. I know you started that social group, Club Soda. What kind of inspired you to do that? Well, I guess a very similar, it was inspired by a couple of things. Firstly, um, launching the Numinous and kind of like discovering this more sort of like spiritual, mystical side of life. Um, I really began to, I, I really found myself kind of like looking at all the things that I almost did unconsciously in my life and sort of questioning why I was going, why I was behaving certain ways. Um, and also having lots of kind of experiences of amazing kind of like workshops and healing circles and different kinds of socializing where alcohol wasn't involved, where I found I was getting a, an amazing kind of like social buzz, meeting some really cool people, and then not having a hangover. And then it really kind of like came into stark contrast with my, my, my kind of like new me clad foot in the other world, <laughs> where I was still going to a lot of bars and restaurants and still drinking regularly. And not feeling great about it at all and so I really began to question well why is it so why is it so um kind of why is it considered so controversial to say you're not drinking or to choose not to drink as and have that a major part of your social life and the more I investigated that the more I realized a lot of friends were feeling the same um you know just kind of like drinking because it was the done thing 
really feeling not great in their in their physical like physically not great and also kind of like suffering um emotionally from that as well and not but not really able to stop because it was just so the done thing so I really felt like there was a space for um just to kind of it's an event series and we have like debates and different speakers and we'll do guided meditations and just kind of like tackle different subjects to do with that whole thing about sober socializing I felt like there was a big space to kind of bring the conversation out into the open Totally. I totally agree. I feel like all of my friends are expressing, I want to drink less or I don't want to drink at all, but the patterns keep repeating just because it's the norm. And so also people are freaked out by being sober. I think that they get a lot of flack. They're like, oh, you're not drinking? You're like, no. Like, whoops, did I mess up? (laughs) I didn't know if this was just because I'm like in my late 30s. So I didn't know if this was just like my age group. You know, everyone's kind of like grown out of it. So it's really interesting for me to hear you say that it's similar. Because I didn't think about not drinking in my 20s. I was so kind of just like, I was that girl dancing on the table at every club in town and like no consideration (laughs) at all. You know, so it's interesting to hear that you're finding that among your um, peer group also. But yeah, I mean, I think in my in my research, you know, it's really when you actually take a step back and think about it, we are basically told by the adults that we grow up around by um, media messages, be that in advertising messages, be that in movies, be that in TV shows, that alcohol is an essential ingredient to socializing. Like when you really start to think about it, how many social events do you ever go to as a person of drinking age? And I'm going to say of drinking age is probably like 15, 16 up, right? Okay, totally. Um, Realistically. (laughs) How many many social events do you ever go to that aren't sporting events, say, where there isn't alcohol or an expectation to drink alcohol? So that messaging just creates these neural pathways in our brain that like automatically equate alcohol with socializing. And so as much as the external pressure, our brains are kind of like hardwired for it by then as well. So it really does take some considerable effort to change those patterns. Totally, especially when there aren't benefits laid out clearly, like this is what you could experience when you drink less versus like this is what you should be experiencing, you should drink some more. Like, <laughs> yeah, Exactly, exactly. And like you say, that peer pressure of just wanting to fit in and not wanting to kind of like be the boring one is really, really intense as well. And it can take so much self-belief um, to go against that. It's really, it's no easy task. So yeah, <laughs> but so worth it. In my experience, it's so worth it. And that's what we try and um, do at the club soda events is we don't we talk a lot less about the negative effect of drinking and a lot more focus on the positive effect of choosing a more sober life. We're also not saying, you know, you can't ever drink. It's just a question of drinking consciously so that you're always the one who's in control and you're always making that decision from a place that's for your own highest good. That's so hard. That's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, you know, like, the pressure and things. So what could be some of the benefits that you've experienced from being sober or drinking consciously, as you would say? Well, I have to say the most, for me, um, particularly with the kind of, like, political climate in the world at the moment, um, just because of the sense of of general kind of, like, unease that is in the world, there's just this sense and I really noticed it. I really began to notice it after sort of like two, three weeks of having no alcohol whatsoever. And it just builds and builds really. And it's this sense of 
just inner confidence and inner strength, which I didn't even realize wasn't there when I was drinking all the time. But like I said, when I cut it out, I just start to develop this kind of like inner sense of calm, which is kind of like, I've got this. Like no matter what life throws at me, I've got it. And it's because I know that I've always got my full wits about me. Like I'm always 100% conscious and aware and switched on. Plus, I think being able to sleep has a huge, huge impact on, um, drink has a huge, huge impact on your sleep. Um, We think that it sends us to sleep or can make us sleepy, but actually it stops us from having, from going into a really deep restorative sleep. And so I've really, really noticed the impact of just being able to sleep through like eight hours deep sleep every night and how much more energy and enthusiasm and optimism. And like, if you think about how awful you feel when you haven't had a good night's sleep, imagine if like every night you've got a really great night's sleep, just how confident and enthusiastic you feel about things. And that for me is another huge bonus, you know? Man, I'm sure, like, everyone out there is, like, nodding in approval, like, yes, I would love to sleep, like, yes. (laughs) And there are so many things that interrupt our sleep anyway, like, technology can interrupt our sleep, just the kind of massive information that we're absorbing now in in modern life, which our brains aren't really designed to, to process that amount of information that we get just through our phones every day, you know? So... We always need to um, counterbalance, I think, that with extra self-care, extra care for the physical. Yeah, maybe like have those moments where instead of people can't guess what decade you're in if they looked in. You're not on a screen, you're not watching your TV, you're just with yourself, yeah. with people. Yeah, okay. Exactly. exactly, I love the way you put it like that. Yes, exactly. That's so much of what I talk about on the numinous is kind of really getting back to those human, those human connections, you know, whether that's a human connection with ourselves or whether it's a human connection with our friends and families. Yeah. So branching off of the numinous, you wrote this book, Material Girl, Mystical World. Mm-hmm. What is that book kind of about? I know it's pre-order, like available for pre-order, so no one's read it. So you don't have to give away <laughs> the juicy bits, but... What's the overall theme of your book? Well, a couple of people, my parents have read it. That was scary, I can tell you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so the overall theme, um, the tagline, the subhead is uh, the high vibe guide, uh, the now age guide to a high vibe life. Okay. So actually, it's a kind of a guidebook, which is an introduction to all of the different topics and philosophies and wellness experiences that I talk about on The Numinous but told through the lens of my personal experience and therefore my personal transformation. I moved to New York in 2012 from London, where, like you said, I was a features editor at the Sunday Times Style Magazine and had this really kind of like glamorous um, but high-stress job. And I moved here, went freelance, decided to set up the Numinous, and that has been the backdrop to a personal transformation that's just like in every area of life, be it my relationships, be it my, particularly my relationship with my mum, be it how I see my work, how I see my contribution to the world, my health, how I see my consumer um, habits, have really transformed through all of the kind of practices that I've been exposed to through running The Numinous. Um, so yeah, it became a bit more memoirish during the writing of it, and it's quite funny, and it's sort of yeah, it's my journey. It's my my journey into what I call the now age. Okay. 
So when you were writing it, did you have a spirit animal or a totem that you would turn to? Because obviously that sounds like a very vulnerable journey to put out there for the world. So (laughs) vulnerable is right. Well, it's funny. I've spoken to another other writer friends and it's kind of like while you're writing it, you're in this bubble and it's just you and your computer a bit like when it's just you and your journal and you're like, oh, I can just let it all out. And now with two months until it comes out, I'm kind of like, oh, my God, the whole world's going to read everything about me now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's also there's something kind of exciting about that, too. The idea of just kind of like being fully known and out there in the world. Um, But, yeah, sorry, what was your original question about that? Oh, totally. It was, (laughs) did you have like a writing spirit animal or a totem that you would turn to while writing? Um, well, I do, I do, and I write about the first time I actually did a meditation to meet my power animal was one of the most moving, um, experiences in a meditation that I've ever had. Actually, I was just in floods of tears and had goosebumps all over my body when I met this big, like huge black stallion in my, in my meditation. And it was so powerful that that black stallion, for me, he really, um, he really just represents again, this kind of like unshakable inner strength of, yes, I've got it, I've got this, I'm supported. But, you know, that sense of I'm supported by my own self, by my own will and by my own self-belief. So the the horse animal totem is one that I definitely call on. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's so beautiful. I'm stoked. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great answer. Wow. <laughs> experience amazing and it was over Skype it was like this I mean I did it with this woman who's based in London and she just guided me into this meditation and I also met on that meditation like a hedgehog and some unicorns and some (laughs) butterflies and I was a bit like these are cute but I don't think they're my power animal and then I met this horse and like I said it was like full body chills just like floods of tears and I was like oh yeah this is this is it (laughs) it resonated okay yeah (laughs) wow that's amazing um so in writing the book, was there a specific chapter that you were super excited to write or a section that you were just like, wow, this resonates with me. I can't wait to put this into the world. Um, there are a few. I mean, I had definitely had some favorite chapters. One chapter, there's a chapter on the divine feminine, um, which is the idea of the idea which we're seeing kind of explored more and more in all sorts of ways of, you know, the divine creative force as a feminine rather than, or as well as perhaps a masculine force. Um, The idea of a connection to the goddess, the idea of a connection to Mother Earth as the kind of great creator. And that actually became much sort of like deeper and more moving than I really expected to. And it really connected very much to the heart of a big message of the book, which is a very feminist message actually. And it's very much about saying, you know, the reason that that all of these kind of ancient practices seem so appealing now is perhaps because these feminine arts, not saying that they're exclusively for women, but feminine arts are um, so sorely needed in the world now, you know, in terms of so many different things that we're experiencing, whether it's politics, whether it's the environment, whether it's kind of like social issues, Um, So that became very kind of moving and impactful. And then there is, I mean, there's a chapter called Healing is the New Nightlife, where I do talk about my journey, how, and it's kind of interesting how a lot of people, like a lot of people when they go to AA, say, and they get sober, they sort of find spirituality. Whereas for me, 
I sort of found my spirituality or at least the connection to myself as a spiritual being and then sort of became sober through that or mainly sober. So yeah, there's a chapter on that as well, which is kind of quite practical and it gives a lot of, it talks about the different kinds of highs that I may have and a lot of the different kinds of ways of socializing I've found, which like I said at the beginning, kind of make me feel really uplifted and give me a really genuine sense of connection to the people I'm hanging out with. And so that was a fun one. Oh, and then there's one about Burning Man too, which is also <laughs> quite entertaining and quite anecdotal, but really talking about, um, yeah, the lessons. I, I, I don't know if you know about Burning Man. It's this festival out in the Nevada desert that happens every year, and it's kind of quite crazy. And I, my first experience there was in 2014, and it was really difficult, like literally brought me to my knees. And wow. so it's a bit of a, a kind of like fun investigation into what the hell was going on with that <laughs> that is not what I would picture like a burning man vibe but I mean yeah. I've never been what can I say <laughs> the thing but for me I think it just marked such a turning point for me between material girl who went there with kind of like my rave head on like shots every day yay dancing and the time totally. but then found that I was actually just re- like, it just really wasn't the experience I was expecting and it made me realize how much my priorities had shifted already by that point on my numinous journey. Man, those experiences are so valuable, even though they can be so hard, though. That's, I love that it happened at Burning Man. <laughs> I think that's so <laughs> yeah. cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, yeah, so, there's just a few. But it, but, and then there's really prescriptive chapters, like how I use astrology, how I use the tarot as well. So kind of much more like how-to guide stuff and then more philosophical chapters of my kind of like experiences and realizations about where we're at so perfect so basically like you said it is a perfect guidebook for melding those two worlds of being like the material girl and also wanting to be spiritually authentic to yourself exactly exactly you know because there's also a chapter on my spiritual style icons and a chapter on inner versus outer beauty and I'm basically saying like there's no I think a lot of people think that to be a spiritual person means you have to kind of like remove yourself from the modern world, meditate in a cave for like four hours a day and just <laughs> like cut off all of those other things that you might previously have enjoyed. And I'm just saying, no, it's not about that at all, but it's about the intention with which you're doing everything in your life. You know, I still love fashion. It's just that most of the clothes I buy now are secondhand or in trade because I realized the impact of fast fashion on the planet and that's become a really important issue to me you know doesn't mean that I still don't rock a pair of Isabel Moran boots when I go out <laughs> yeah I was gonna ask <laughs> <laughs> um so do you have a favorite tarot deck I heard you mention tarot as one of your tools and I love tarot so I just have to know if you have a favorite deck well I really love the star child um star child tarot decks um by Danielle Noel I don't know if you're familiar with those Yes. But they're very dreamy, kind of like pastel colors. I just really love the colors and the aesthetic of those. And we actually ran, and you will probably love this, look it up on The Numinous just a couple of weeks ago, um, an article called What's Your Tarot Type? And the journalist who submitted it, there are like 28 decks in that, or something, loads of which I hadn't heard before, and some of them are really fun and colorful. So I actually want to explore a bit more about maybe getting a new one. But I love Danielle Noel's Star Child Tarot decks. And then I also really, really adore... Um, and you asked about animal totems, the wild unknown animal spirit deck. Oh, hers is so beautiful. 
so cool that animals and I actually have got into a practice of just pulling a new animal card for every new moon that I kind of take as my totem for that moon phase oh my gosh this is perfect my next section is like all about ritual yay okay <laughs> so we will totally come back to that but why why is ritual important because you just mentioned you pull a card every new moon mm-hmm. I would say that's probably a ritual why would that be something important in your life and to other people's lives Well, I think ritual, it's funny, like I have a wonderful friend called Ali who um, leads ceremony from time to time and is just a very kind of like mystical, wonderful, witchy woman. And she says that actually ritual is the language of the soul. So when we're talking, when we're talking about things that, um, or we're wanting to sort of like communicate with ourselves or set an intention in the world that's not necessarily that easy to define with words we do it through ritual, you know? We actually kind of like enact these different ritualized processes. And a ritual can, I think it can be a bit of a a kind of like alienating word. You can be like, oh, I don't have an altar and I'm not religious and I don't have the right crystals. And totally. I I think a ritual can be anything that that means something to you, you know? Um, So for me, my new moon ritual has become about pulling a new card choosing a new crystal that I'm just going to like carry with me for that month and writing down some intentions. And it's nothing fancy, but that to me is my, my ritual. And I think the reason they're important in our lives is because it's a way for us to connect with that kind of like soul spirit part of ourselves that doesn't really get too much airtime otherwise, you know? Yeah. So how did you go about creating a ritual that felt authentic and meaningful to you? Because like you said, I feel like a lot of people get intimidated by the word ritual and they feel like they need to be like I don't know burning things under the moonlight or whatever (laughs) and since they're like well I can't do that I just guess I'm not gonna have ritual so how do you create something that's meaningful and authentic that's a ritual well I think you can experiment a bit you know with a few different things it might be and I actually did I do love burning some palo santo or some seishas because I love um what the different scents of those aromatic um tools kind of like do to my psyche as well you know they can really sort of like take me to a different place um so I don't know I think yeah you can experiment with a few things and think about what realistically fits into your life too I'm you know I have mercury in Aries I'm pretty impatient I kind of am like go 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 I've got five minutes for this (laughs) the next thing yeah (laughs) Um, but for someone who has like their mercury which is the planet of like communication and in that sense I suppose ritual um Someone who has that in Pisces might be like, might feel much more like, no, mine is a ritual bath and I am going to like every month on the full moon or whatever day it might be, I'm going to do a bath and I'm going to fill it with salts and I'm going to get my candles out and that's what feels like a meaningful ritual to me, you know? So I think this is why I start my book talking about how I use, how we can use astrology and really understanding our own birth chart to kind of like tap into the things which are meaningful to us. And like kind of block out some of the noise and some of the should do this and should do that stuff, you know? Um, So, yeah, I think, yeah, just experiment, read up on different things, speak to friends about what they do and and try a few different things. And also, yeah, and and with that comes the idea of like there's no right or wrong way, you know? You're not going to like piss off the spirit world if you you, like burn the wrong wood or you know. <laughs> that's so funny totally <laughs> nothing's yeah. gonna come get you it's not like a Ouija board <laughs> exactly exactly there's so much fear around all of these kind of like 
spiritual practices in a way as well. And I feel like, you know, just things that we've seen from movies and from popular culture. And I feel like that's part of the whole, it's part of the whole witch hunt thing that suppressed all of these feminine arts, these ancient human technologies, you know, which are actually there for us to just use as, as we want to use them. Totally, and not worry about that whole maybe religion-based consequence thing of if you don't do this, then therefore you're going to lose out on something, Hey, like go to hell or have bad karma or, you know. Exactly, exactly, which is not also to say that, you know, there aren't very rich and lengthy spiritual traditions that do have their rules and totally and their, their, their specific rituals, but unless you're really, like, signing up, 100% to be part of that particular religion, faith, whatever. Um, I think I, I, I'm of the mind that it's okay to to pick and choose and find things that work for you. Awesome. Very, like, now age, as you would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did you have a ritual that you kind of started out with when you started your journey? Like... Yeah, like what was the first ritual you got into? And is it something that's stuck or have you kind of let it go over time? Um, I don't know if there was a ritual I got into. I think one of the first things when I first moved to New York, I was living right down the street from this store called Stick, Stone and Bone, which was like your classic kind of esoteric supplies store. Um, and I was having a really, both my husband and I had had a really stressful time with the move. It was just like way more full on than we expected. Yeah. Um, and they sold these crystal rings in the store that were like protection rings. And honestly, that summer I went through about five or six of them because they oh kept gosh. breaking off my, like literally breaking off my fingers. And I'd go back and buy a new one. And eventually I was like, I don't know what's up, but they keep breaking. She's like, oh, they must be working really hard. You've got to remember to like charge them. And I was like, okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like yeah just leave them in direct moonlight or direct sunlight um every couple of weeks or something so I guess wearing those rings was the first time and I would describe them as talismans you know a talisman is just something like an object that you keep on your person um which you can kind of like infuse with your own intentions and meanings and by wearing those I guess I was just kind of like calling on whatever energies or whatever part of myself I believed was going to protect me and and kind of like shield me from some of the stress that I was experiencing. So I guess those rings were the first thing that I sort of attached to. I don't use them now and I haven't worn one for, for years, but um, that was something. But in terms of other rituals, I don't know. I've always sort of, you know, my interest in astrology means I've always been interested in the full and new moons. And even if that's just, like I said, been writing down my intentions every new moon for the month, you know? Something as simple as that Could is something you... I've always done. Sorry to interrupt. Could you okay. explain for our listeners what the kind of basic symbolism of a full and then of a new moon is? Yes, sure. So I don't know if you know, but I have another project called Moon Club, which would be great for you to check out and, and your listeners may love it too. The website is just moonclub.co. Um, and this is a monthly membership that's a sort of like coaching and mentoring program. And we do it by the moon phase. So each cycle of the membership begins with a new moon. So in 
in ancient times, <laughs> there are actually <laughs> considered to be 13 months of the year. Because the lunar month, before clocks were invented, time was measured by the phases of the moon. The moon, as we know, is linked to our menstrual cycles, and it takes 28 to 29 days to go from new moon, which is when, like, scientifically, it's when it's next to the sun. It's at the same position as the sun in the sky, so there's no light from the sun shining on the moon from where we can see on Earth, so we can't actually see the moon to full, which is where it's directly opposite the sun, and the full light of the sun is shining onto the moon, so we see the full moon on the Earth, and then back around to the new moon again. Um, and traditionally, the new moon is a time to, well, the dark moon is the day before the moon, and that's really a time to like totally retreat from the world, go completely within to yourself, and really kind of look at what's ready to just like be released and kind of like let go into the void of darkness and just kind of like moved on from. So the day of the new moon and the evening of the new moon is a really good time to just kind of set your intentions for the month ahead, meaning like literally, what do I want to happen this month? What do I want to happen? But also who do I want to be this month? What do I want to attract this month? Um, and that's sort of the energy of what they call the waxing moon as the moon gets fuller and fuller again until you reach the full moon. And this is a time to celebrate the abundance that's showing up in your life, all the things you have begun to manifest. A time to actually be with friends, be with family, actually come out and share what's happening in your life and talk about it. So then it starts to get smaller again, and during the, the waning moon phase, which is why it's getting smaller, is when again you're kind of like looking at the things that are no longer kind of working out, you know, that you've manifested all this new stuff, which is squeezing out some of the old stuff. And okay. so connecting to the phases of the moon, I just find it to be an amazing way to to be reminded our lives go in cycles you know and so like every week I'm having a really stressful week like this week's kind of intense <laughs> I'm able to think I know I know how life works know how the planet works this week is stressful there will be a week soon when it's all easy and everything's just kind of like landing on my lap you know yes so yeah for me connecting to the moon and its phases is just a really great reminder um that things move in cycles. Okay, it keeps you like in touch with yourself, in touch with like things move on, keeps you grounded. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Awesome. So you do those obviously once a month about. Is there anything you do daily that kind of keeps you in tune with your authentic self or the universe or whatever you want to call it? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, everyone says it, right? You should really, you should meditate. Do you meditate? Does everyone meditate? Yes. <laughs> and for years, I like tried to meditate. I, remember, I think I first went to a kind of meditation session um, with this astrologer I knew back in London in probably like 2010, maybe. And it was like, oh wow! It was really the first time, and I write about this in my book that I'd actually kind of realized that myself and my thoughts, i.e., my mind were actually two separate things, because in this meditation I actually was like, oh, hold on, I'm looking at my thoughts, I can observe my thoughts, oh, that must mean that I'm I'm something different. So that, that I that is something different from my thoughts is what I define or think of as my higher self, my spiritual self, etc. Um, but then for years I really struggled to find a meditation practice that I could stick to. Um, it's basically not easy. You, it's really hard to be good at meditation if your goal in meditation is to kind of like empty your mind of thoughts or even just to monitor your thoughts. It's really, really difficult. 
yeah. because your brain your brain is designed to think, right? If your brain stops thinking, you're essentially brain dead or you're <laughs> in a coma. So like your brain is never going to stop thinking. So you're fighting a totally losing battle. And actually the practice of meditation is just that practice. But because it's so difficult and because we as humans like to be able to like improve at things and do things that we're good at, it's really hard to stick at meditation. <laughs> um, so for years I kind of like tried to find a practice and then finally because I was writing this book and there was a chapter on meditation, I decided to try transcendental meditation, which I'd always thought was kind of like the most like expert style of meditation you could do. I'm going to do it for 20 minutes twice a day. It's a mantra based meditation. You have to be taught it one on one with a trained teacher. Wow, I was like, okay. well, it's really intense. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have to try it if I want to write about everything. And amazingly, it's, the mo- it's actually the easiest kind of meditation there is, and it's the one thing that's stuck. So I now, I actually just do 20 minutes in the morning. I try and fit in my 20 minutes in the afternoon, but I don't beat myself up if I don't, because even just doing the 20 minutes like without fail, seven days a week, 365 days a year, that's been, um, that's just a really amazing way to start the day with that kind of connection intact, you know? Yeah. And you mentioned it has mantras. Do they change with the day or do you pick them? Um, When you are in with um, transcendental meditation, like I said, you're taught one on one and they actually give you in your training a mantra that you then use the same mantra for the rest of your life. Wow. Yes. And you're not going to share it with anyone. And it's kind of yeah, so there aren't like, it's not like every individual gets a unique mantra. I think there's like, I think they do it by, you know, your age and your gender and like all sorts of like different things. They work out the mantra for you kind of thing. Um, okay, that's beautiful. So I've been using that mantra. And I, I mean, my teacher, Bob Roth, who's the director of the David Lynch Foundation where I learned, he's like been meditating for 40 years with the same mantra like every day. Oh my gosh. I bet I know. it feels really good. He's the, and honestly, he's the best advertisement for regular meditation because he is the least reactive, friendliest, sweetest, just like most lovely, generous guy I've ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we would all love to be more like that, less reactive, you know, way more relaxed. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. So how... I'm guessing meditation had something to do with this, but how did you kind of start to get in touch with or create a relationship with your guides, your intuition, the universe, again, kind of whatever you want to label it as? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually, th- this is how I opened the book, but um, I got introduced to a psychic medium called Betsy Cohen um, shortly after I'd moved to New York. And she immediately invited me to a seance at her house. And I was like, okay, this is the world I'm operating in now. I'm going to a seance. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, Betsy, she actually, she goes by the name Betsy LaFay now. She's based out in um, Austin, Texas. She moved down there, but she's available for everything by Skype. Anyway, she describes herself as much as she's a psychic medium and she can connect to people on the other side, et cetera, and give readings. Her main work is as an intuition coach. And at this seance, she kind of set the whole thing up as kind of like, you know, we're going to be opening the circle. We will be receiving messages from the other side. And I want you to share any messages that you get. And we were all a bit like, what? And she's like, yes, look, all of us receive 
psychic messages and intuitive hits all the time. It's just that we're not trained to recognize when we get them. Um, so she talks about how all of our five senses, smell, sight, sound, taste, touch, and then just also knowing the sixth sense, um, are kind of like giving us messages all the time. You know, it's when people say, you're listening to your gut. It's because you literally sometimes feel in your gut that this is not the right thing to do, you know, and it's kind of, I don't know, I just think, so So really it's just been a, a practice of really tuning in to when I'm getting those intuitive hits about things and then trusting them and kind of like acting on them, even when things in the outside world might not suggest that I should be making that choice versus this choice. I'm just going with what my intuition tells me and trusting that it's, that it's the right thing. So, so yeah, it's kind of a practice, but it's something that we're all born with, that ability. She, Betsy's opening line is always like, you know you're psychic if you have a body because your body is giving you these messages all the time, you know? Yay, um, that's awesome. <laughs> that's another reason, to be honest, why I don't really want to drink alcohol because one thing I've noticed from cutting out, when I cut down alcohol, if I do drink now, I notice how it almost immediately numbs me out from those kind of more subtle messages I'm getting from my body. I actually want to be in tune all the time as much as I can with what my body is telling me about the situation I'm in. Yeah, I totally agree. And then that effect can last for, oh, I guess as you get older, a couple of days after. Yeah. Oh my God, yes. Well, that's what I said. Like, I didn't realize, even if I was, even if I cut down my drink and I was only drinking maybe like one or two nights a week, it stays in your system and you don't really realize how much it's still affecting you until you get it like really clean. And then you're just like, Oh wow. I'm generally, I was operating at like 20% below par my entire life because of the residual alcohol in my system, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. It's a kind of a creepy feeling like how one night can affect so much of your mental, emotional and like spiritual state. (laughs) You're like, Whoa, that really took me off the track. (laughs) really is and I've noticed it so much now they you know there's that thing right we call it getting out of it I got out of it on booze and it's kind of like I always think of it now like I'm in this groove I'm in my groove I'm in my my plate I found my place in the universe and it's all kind of like happening like it should and then I get drunk I get wasted and I get out of it and it takes me so long to get back into the groove I'm just like I don't have time for that you know no especially when like you're your intuition and those things are guiding you for your best self and for your best life. Like you don't have time to waste to get on that track. Exactly. Exactly. Um, random question that I just thought of based on what we're talking about. Alcohol has been used in rituals for so long. Do you think that there's still a place for it in our modern world in like a more ritualistic sense or what would its place be? Definitely. Okay, so I said I still drink on occasion. And through trial and error, I have worked out that the occasions that it works for me to drink are if I'm dancing outside at a music festival to like one of my favorite bands. That sounds amazing. In that moment, alcohol is a very useful substance that I want to get out of my, my, my body in that sense. I kind of want to just kind of like release and like just move and like shake the energy out of my body through dancing and alcohol really facilitates that for me. But those experiences come maybe two or three times a year, you know, um, not every Friday night, you know, <laughs> True. So I, I think and I'm very, I'm very, very interested in the idea of, um, alcohol as a sacrament 
but also any kind of substances really that can be used in a way that is um, beneficial, you know, which takes there's so little inf real, like, real information out there about what we can use and when that it's it's kind of a bit of a minefield. So it has to be kind of like entered into very um, carefully, I think. But yeah, I do absolutely think there's a place for alcohol. It's just that it's so it's been so it's so abused in society that it's actually really difficult to to find what that is for you. You know, I often I kind of think about like, have you heard about ayahuasca, for example? Yes, yes. Okay, so ayahuasca, for those who don't know, is like a very highly potent psychoactive hallucinogen that comes from the Amazon that people take in ceremony to have kind of like out-of-body and hallucinogenic experiences that give, give them very information, useful information from the kind of spirit world. So it's pretty out there. It's definitely not something you do every weekend. <laughs> no. But I think about, when I think about, okay, so we know ayahuasca can kind of like it can give you hallucinations, it can cause extreme emotional reactions, it can make you vomit, um, all of these different things. When you actually think about alcohol, alcohol can make you hallucinate, it can definitely cause weird emotional reactions, it can absolutely make you vomit, and yet we think nothing of doing it like three or four times a week. And if I, so now I have, now I've kind of placed alcohol in the same category that I would place a substance like ayahuasca, which makes me so much more considerate about when I'm actually going to take it. I love that because I feel like that's one of the problems I've run into and a lot of my peers run into is we don't really know how to classify it because we know it creates havoc in our lives and you know you just brush it off like well I was blacked out or I was drunk but mm -hmm. it was it's obviously an extreme reaction and it feels very scary to have those reactions and kind of have pressure to just go into that state casually you're like well yeah. Yeah, so I love that kind of that reclassification in a way to yeah. put it in perspective. Exactly, just put it in perspective. And like, this is a very, very, it's one of the five most addictive substances known to humans. It's more addictive than cocaine. Wow, and, I did not know that. And yet it's heavily marketed at us from like the word go, you know? Yeah. Plus, brains, our brains are actually hardwired to seek out and repeat experiences that A, give us pleasure or B, numb pain. Alcohol on like a really superficial level appears to do both those things. So you've got our brains seeking it out because of that. It's a highly addictive, like one of the most addictive substances out there and it's heavily marketed at us. It's really hard not to get caught in that. So yeah, I, but I think that thing of reclassifying it is kind of like, oh yeah, this is like taking heroin. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, <laughs> not as extreme, but yes, I totally agree. And then, and then maybe you would, maybe you could like once a month do an alcohol ritual with your friends where you're taking it in a really kind of like, um, really kind of um, intentional container where you go into it and you say, okay, tonight we're going to do this and we're going to talk about this or we're going to dance for an hour solid, like headbanging to this music and actually use it in a ritualized way, you know? <laughs> Wow, I super love that. I think that's a great way to make yourself be more conscious about how much you're drinking and why you're drinking and what calls for an occasion to drink versus just it being a Tuesday night and there's a live band in town. <laughs> exactly. And there's also, of course, you know, there's um, there's actually a really good uh, documentary you might have seen, but I think you and your listeners would probably enjoy it. It's called Risky Drinkers. It's on HBO at the moment. Um, and they just talk about all the different reasons we use alcohol. And of course because of the way that it helps to numb us out um, and it's an, an anesthetic, people do turn to it 
because they're sad or because they're feeling lonely. And actually all it's going to do is exacerbate those feelings once the effects of the alcohol wear off. So it's kind of the worst time to take it is when you're feeling down or you want to feel connected to someone. Or And that's, I think, when it's really important to get conscious about seeking other ways to make yourself feel better, you know? Totally. And you mentioned so many tools in this episode. You mentioned meditation. We talked about tarot and astrology and even getting in touch with the earth via like looking at the moon. I think there's a ton out there that can be used as tools that are actually fun. It's not like lame <laughs> to do on a Friday night. It can all be fun. This is the thing. I mean, yeah, it's about turning around the, the thing of like, oh, I'm not doing this and that I'm denying myself something to I'm actually choosing something else and something better, you know? Yeah, and waking up without a hangover and feeling like secure in yourself is amazing. <laughs> Best. Priceless. Yes, 100% priceless. So before you go, because I know you're very busy and you got to get out there and do what your boss girl self has to do, <laughs> what in, if you had just like a little soundbite, what would your mystical world look like and what would your material world look like? How do you define those? Um, well, my mystical world is everything that's inside me that I can't really express with words. It's my feelings, my emotions, my intuition, um, and my sense of myself as a spiritual being, meaning a being of spirit who is connected to every other being through my spirit. Um, and my material world is all of the incredible high vibe stuff I'm putting out, whether it's my blog, whether it's my, um, the events that I put on. It's my friendships, it's my family, um, and much less, you know, my material world used to be a lot more about handbags and shoes, <laughs> and those <laughs> play a part for sure, but it's so much more about um, the things in the outer world that actually bring me kind of meaningful happiness. Okay, I love that. I totally vibe that. The universe in ourselves versus acknowledging the tangible love around us. Exactly, yeah, beautifully put, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, that's <laughs> what I'm here for. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much, Ruby, for coming on my podcast. I am just honored from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great meeting you. Yes, and I will shout out your book and all of your info in the podcast notes. But for everyone out there, where can they find you? Um, so the website is the Newman, the hyphen numinous.com. Numinous is spelled N U M I N O U S. My Instagram is the underscore numinous. Um, Moon Club, which honestly I do think you guys will love, is moonclub.co. Um, and Club Soda, I'm actually going, my next meeting is with my Club Soda partner to go and talk about our website. So that's that's kind of like out there waiting to be defined. But yeah, you can find me all those places. The book is out. May 2nd is available for pre-order. There's a whole bunch of kind of extras if you um, pre-order the book, like I'm doing a special webinar on how to discover your dharma, which is kind of like your life purpose. Um, there's a special missing chapter that everyone's going to get on how to work with your angels and spirit guides. And you also get a free month's membership to Moon Club when you pre-order the book. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, yes, I'm definitely pre-ordering. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ruby, well, have a wonderful rest of your day. Again, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you. It's great meeting you. I'll speak to you soon. Of course. Bye, Ruby. Bye. Okay, guys, that was Ruby Warrington of The Numinous, an author of upcoming book, Material Girl, Mystical World, out May 2nd. Don't forget to pre-order for all those goodies. Um, that was my first big girl interview, and I was so excited to have her on. So 
go check it out on iTunes and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for the support, guys. Have a good day. Bye!